Research shows that project-based learning is a surefire way to promote student learning and may be more effective than traditional instruction in social studies, science, mathematics, and literacy. The continued emergence of research finding to support PBL as a valid method of instruction for all students, including those who are furthest from opportunity, is promising and growing. Welcome to episode 105 of the Teacher Rockstar podcast, a place where tips and strategies critical to the new teacher are discussed. Today, we will be talking about project-based learning with our guest, Dr. John Shamberry. But before we do, here's a quick word from our sponsor. Would you like to supercharge your classroom management skills? Well, if you're a teacher with less than five years of classroom experience, a student teacher, or perhaps you're a teacher returning back to the classroom after an extended absence, the Teacher Rockstar Academy course is for you. Gain the confidence, the skills you'll need to make all the difference in the world for our boys and girls. Enroll now at tra.teacherclassroomresources.com. I believe you can transform yourself into becoming a truly great teacher. It just takes the right tools and the right approach. Before we dive into the nuts and bolts of project-based learning, I'd like to tell you some super cool things about today's guest. Dr. John Schmberry is an improvement coach through which he supports teachers and school leaders by performing on-site evaluations, identifying data-informed trends, reviewing curriculum assessment materials, creating improvement plans, coaching individuals one-on-one, developing and delivering group trainings to educators, and implementing evidence-based instructional strategies that improve teaching practices and increase student learning. John's areas of specific interest include the facilitation of professional learning communities and educator affinity networks, implementation of project-based learning, and the development of teaching practices that promote student engagement, equity, and inclusion. Prior to his time as a consultant, he served as a middle school teacher, high school social studies teacher, founding high school principal, K-12 district CAO, leadership development facilitator, and as national director of teacher and school leader learning. John also has lived, worked internationally in Japan, Saudi Arabia, and the United Kingdom, and occasionally performs on-site reviews of American curriculum schools in the United Arab Emirates. Raised in New Jersey, he received his undergrad degree from the University of Mary Washington, Virginia, his master's degree in public administration from the University of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, his second master's degree in educational supervision from Montclair State University in New Jersey, and his doctorate in educational leadership from Seton Hall University, New Jersey. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks, Steve, for having me. I appreciate it and look forward to our uh, conversation today. All right. You know, I am so very excited to have you share your expertise with us today. So, John, tell our listeners about your journey within the education world. Sure. So, uh, as uh, you indicated in my, my bio, I have had the opportunity to live and travel in, in different places. And prior to becoming a teacher, I was actually going to go into international affairs as a career. Uh, that's what I was studying at the University of Pittsburgh. And somewhere along the line, I think it started by having a friend at the University of Pittsburgh who had taught English in Japan on the JET program a couple years prior 
to us going to graduate school together. And that experience always sounded really fascinating to me. And then I kind of put it in the back of my mind. And then when uh, I graduated from graduate school and was working in D.C. in nonprofit international affairs think tanks, I had the opportunity to teach adults ESL at the community college level. And I was also doing a lot of work with our interns in the various uh, nonprofit think tanks that I was working in. And I was really finding that I enjoyed helping people, supporting people, and really liked the process of learning and, and learning about learning. And so I had that information that was in the back of my mind about teaching in Japan come to the front of my mind. And uh, like my friend, I ended up doing the JET program for a couple years. And when I came back from Japan uh, and came back to New Jersey, uh, that's when I made the shift into teaching. I went back, got my, uh, got my educator certification. Then from there, and, and having had various teaching jobs while I was teaching in the classroom, uh, I had the opportunity to get my master's in educational administration. And it was that degree that then saw me doing some of the various admin roles uh, that you had mentioned in, in my introduction in my bio. And really, that's, mm -hmm. that's my circuitous route into uh, education. So I, I wasn't uh, planning on being an educator when I was very young, but uh, uh, somehow life has a way of, uh, of uh, bringing you or steering you around to what you might not have originally thought you were going to do. Absolutely. I, I hear you. Um, well, let me let me uh, let's go ahead and dive right in uh, to uh, one of your areas of expertise, which is project-based learning, which to me is so fascinating. Uh, I'd like to ask what your definition of project-based learning is. Sure. Well, project-based learning is several different things combined into one specific way of uh, having students learn information, right? So. Right. To me, project-based learning is student-engaging, activity-based, critical thinking-based learning where students come together in a group, usually. You can right. do it individually, but I think it's much more powerful as a tool when you do PBL collaboratively. They come together around a problem that needs to be solved, and they need to develop a product however you want to define that, to address that problem. Uh, so that's really the core and the crux of PBL or project-based learning, which is really making learning engaging, relevant, authentic uh, to right. real life and the skills, not only the content that students need to know, but the skills through which they're learning that content is just as important in PBL. All of that comes together to to really help create, like I said, these classroom environments that are that are engaging and are fully going to vest the student in the process of their own learning. All right. Well, then let me ask you, uh, John, why is PBL so important in today's classrooms? You know? Yeah, I, I think and, and Steve, you and I have had other conversations prior uh -huh. to us talking online. So I don't think what I'm about to say is going to come to surprise to you. Uh, also given your work in education. But I think for far too long, education has lagged when it comes to helping students develop 
the skills and competencies that they're actually going to need to be productive members of society. So if we look at the jobs that we have today, who knows what the jobs of tomorrow are going to look like. But if we do start looking at the types of jobs that are being created today, we definitely see the skills of collaboration and cooperation being perhaps much more important than they were in uh, past years uh, right. in terms of, of the working world. And it really is important for people to be problem solvers. So it's really important for workers to have intellectual capacity to really think outside the box and to really, uh, I don't know what the word is, but really to engage again around what these problems are that a corporation might be wanting to solve and being able to do that collaboratively and being able to not be the sage on the stage, but really being a team member, not a, not a retiring wallflower. I mean, still being assertive and, <laughs> you know, expressing yeah. your expertise, whatever that is, but doing it in a way where everyone's contributions are validated and valued and that there's equity. Uh, and, and research shows that the more diverse our teams are, the more people that do have a voice in decision making, uh, uh -huh. often the better the decision actually is. So right. uh, to get back to your original question, why is PBL so important? Obviously, given that it is about solving an authentic issue or an authentic problem in a collaborative way, where again, students aren't just regurgitating information but taking information and analyzing it, synthesizing it, coming up with solutions, evaluating, uh, for example, you know, whether to do option A or option B. All of those are key skills that I know our students are gonna need moving forward to fully participate in the 21st century economy. So ultimately that's, that's the main reason why PBL is important. And I mean, as a subsidiary, as a subsidiary, excuse me, reason, mm -hmm. it's just so much more engaging, Steve, than yes, it sitting is. and yep. listening to a lecture. Absolutely. Hey, I'm with you there. Now, let me ask you, uh, John, how does the PBL then fit into group work? I know you mentioned a minute ago that, you know, it could be done individually, but, and that's cool, but how, how does PBL fit into group work? Yeah, so there are many different ways that teachers can do group work. So, in my coaching work, Steve, I'm often suggesting to teachers that they consider what they're teaching lecture style to think about whether or not they could teach that information more in a group or peer-to-peer -peer fashion. So group work can be anything from on the simple level or on a simple level, turn and talk to your partner about XYZ and then we'll engage in a discussion around that. That's really a good strategy when you're just getting the kids a new topic, such as in the introduction of a lesson. But then, you know, right. as you're releasing students later on to practice whatever skill it is that you want students to be working on, again, rather than, for example, having students just reading and responding to questions at the back of a chapter and then going over those one by one, as a whole class, students can be engaging in an inside outside circle activity where 
you know, students are shifting and changing partners and going over one question at a time, but with different partners. And again, they're still doing the same thing. They're still reviewing questions or uh, answering uh, what it, whatever the content is that they need to be answering. But again, doing it in a way where they are hopefully learning from not just one peer, but from multiple peers in their classroom. So that's an example of group work. It's not PBL, but it is group work. Or if students are engaging in a jigsaw activity or a gallery walk, again, all of those can be great ways to get peers working with peers in a more collaborative, engaging way than, say, lecture. And again, they're all group activities, or they can be group activities, but they're not PBL. Right. PBL is really about having that essential question at the core of what students are researching and doing. And then PBL is also about coming up with that product or that solution to whatever that question is. And then, like I was saying before, working together collaboratively in terms of really mastering the process of collaboration as well as the end product. Both are important. And then the other big difference in PBL is that there be some kind of public display or public exhibition of the work that the group did does or did together in the, the PBL activity. Yeah, exactly. So I would say that summarizing all that, PBL is a much more formalized, specific process by which students can go really deep into a topic. So that means it also usually will take more than one class period, whereas a gallery walk activity can be done in a 15, 20 minute period of time within one class. Right. Right. Absolutely. Well, uh, John, now I know this would help out new teachers uh, specifically, but what is the role of the teacher in project-based learning? And, and kind of allude to the new teacher, you know, and of course, I'd like you to talk about the role of the student as well. Sure. So whether or not the teacher is new or experienced, the role of teacher when it comes to PBL is that of facilitator. They're not there necessarily to determine how students will solve whatever that essential question is. They're not there to be hovering over students as students are learning how to work together in solving that uh, essential question. Rather, it is the job of the teacher to set the conditions for the project-based learning. So in other words, are they providing students, if the students need it, with that essential question? Are they giving students a variety of materials, whether those are texts to read, videos to watch, podcasts even, to really synthesize and curate information about the topic at hand from multiple sources? That's definitely the role of the teacher. And it is the role of the teacher to scaffold or extend the activities or the information that students are receiving based on where the students are at in terms of their academic readiness. So, you know, PBL does not mean, even though you're just the facilitator, 
does not mean that you forget that you might have ELL learners in your classroom or special education exactly. students. Exactly. Yeah. You right. know, you still as the teacher need to be curating and scaffolding your materials so those students can access that same deep processing essential questions as your students who are on proficiency level can. And then two, it is also the responsibility of the teacher to provide extensions or and or let's say text at a higher complexity level if they have students that have already met proficiency in whatever the standard is that students are learning as they engage in PBL. So I think that's still a part of the teacher's role. And it is the teacher's role to, to be that guide on the side to make sure that students stay on task. So when they see students going off the rails or engaging in non-academic talk, what do students do to bring students back around to the purpose of why uh, they're working together? And it is also the teacher's job, in my opinion, to ensure that they are accounting for not just collective responsibility, i.e. the final project, but that they're giving students or at least creating roles for the students to then decide who will be in each of those roles. So that way every individual within project-based learning has a role to contribute to the overall uh, group processes and project. So I would say all of that is in the realm of the teacher. Really, again, the facilitation, the guide on the side. And then as for the students themselves, uh, their role, like I, I, like I was alluding to in what I just said, is to be product, a productive team member, to be responsible and accountable for the part of the project that you are responsible for, bringing your thoughts and ideas together and collaborating with each other to create something new, something that is inclusive of the group's thinking across the board. Uh, it is the student's job to remain on task. And it is also the student's job to, uh, to engage with others, to evaluate their own work, to revise their own work, to present their own work, and to ultimately, hopefully, take accountability, not just for their overall achievement, but for their growth, as well as for what the next steps are uh, based on how well they they do in this project-based learning environment. Right. right. Well, now to piggyback off the role of the student, uh, John, uh, d does each student have a specific job or role within the group? Yeah, I mean, I've seen... PBL work where students define what their roles are themselves and teachers did not have uh, you know, a say in doing that or setting that up. That does tend to work in student groups that tend to work well with each other and uh, groups where students are all equally accountable. So most of the time, Steve, in the work that I do with educators, I do recommend that teachers do set up some basic roles so that way there is that individual accountability as well as that collective accountability. Because when I get okay. pushback from teachers in doing PBL, it's that's often one of the reasons why. There's this belief that, 
oh, well, PBL means one student does all the work and the other ones just sort of follow and listen. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that could be right. what happens if, again, you don't set up the the expectations for expectations. your students. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But right. it doesn't right. have to be that right. way. Okay. All right, good. Now, one thing I wanted to ask you, John, is, is you know, I, I know you alluded to it earlier about the effectiveness uh, of project-based learning, but, again, could you kind of speak to how effective the overall project-based learning experience is? Yeah, I think it depends on how teachers develop it, facilitate it, and how they use it. And let me explain. So, again, as they're developing project a project-based learning unit, are they making mm -hmm. it an authentic representation of what people do in the quote-unquote real world? So are students solving a real essential question and solving that in a way that they would say in a working environment as part of a team. So the more that the project-based learning initiative mirrors those authentic tasks that we do as members of society, uh, as adults, the better. I think also too, the project-based learning units that I've seen that have been more effective than ones that have not, have been those projects where students are self-assessing and peer-to-peer -peer assessing the quality of their own work and then setting goals moving forward based on how students are doing and, and how they see themselves doing. So the more that the teacher, again, and we talked about this before, doesn't just think about the content that they're teaching but thinks about the social emotional learning skills that they want students to get out of the process, uh, the better. I think that that is an element of an effective PBL unit. And then lastly, I think what makes PBL units most effective is that public piece, the sharing out of this work to peers, because as we know, being able to communicate a vision, being able to articulate the importance of something is definitely a skill that leadership should have because gone are the days, Steve, where leadership said, this is what you're going to do and this is how you're going to do it. The new Exactly. <laughs> the new definition of leadership is collaborative leadership and being almost the, the head cheerleader, if you will, in getting people vested around an initiative or vested around an idea. So I truly believe that when teachers develop PBL units for students that get at that public publishing aspect, if you will, of PBL, again, I think the more that mirrors the skills that our students are going to need not just to be workers, but again, to be leaders in society. Absolutely. I'm with you there. Well, John, let me ask you, uh, how does PBL differ from just, let's say, just doing hands-on activities in the classroom? You know, right. Or right. Uh, I think the key difference is the intentionality, right? And the... The hope that by doing PBL, students are creating something new, something bigger, something more critically or uh, intellectually nuanced 
than just regurgitating information that they're given. So I, th I think one of the beauties of PBL is if the, if the teacher is developing a PBL unit around essential questions that are more highly rigorous or higher up on Bloom's cognitive uh, matrix, if you will, I think what's what could be truly powerful about a PBL experience is, again, those questions can lead to students developing their own questions or additional questions. And so the learning is very open. The learning can continue, right? Just, you know, when I got my doctorate, you know, one of the things my, uh, my mentor told me to do was to take the research that others had done in my area of interest and to look at the summary and to look at what were those areas of research that that researcher did not get to explore. And that is what I should have should concentrate on, you know, in my research about that similar topic. So if you think about it, PBL is kind of similar in the sense that it is really that open. It, it's really a way to have that open learning that, uh, constructivist approach to education that, you know, John Dewey was obviously a, a proponent of. Uh, and yeah. I think what's really mainly different between just any other activity is, again, you could do group work when you're having students answer questions, right? Where it's just not you at the front of the classroom as a teacher going, all right, what's the answer to question number one? Thank you, Joey. All right, what's the answer mm -hmm. to question number two? Thank you, Steve. All right, what's the question number three? Thank you, Mary. I mean, very boring, very basic, very knowledge level, right? Now, right. you're not really changing the questions when you're engaging students, for example, in an inside-outside circle, but they are at least engaging with one another. So that would be more, in my opinion, what a group activity or a discussion activity might be. But again, I don't necessarily know if all of those other activities are going to create the same level of intellectual complexity that a well-facilitated, well-developed PBL unit could and can deliver. I mean, those other activities can. I, I really do think it's about how thoughtful teachers are in crafting the questions, the student facing questions that they're giving students. And if they're thinking about those questions before the class, so if they're really yeah. building them into their lesson plans, but ultimately I still am gonna put my money on PBL as being a strategy or a way of learning that just lends itself to that open constructivist model of education. Right. And I, and I, I agree with that totally, 100%. Um, could you provide, John, some examples of, of some project-based learning um, activities? Yeah. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw back upon a time I was actually in a classroom where I saw a missed opportunity. That doesn't mean I don't think the teachers cared about their students. I mean, the teachers were clearly interested in the topic they were presenting. They were engaging their students in the topic. And it was a middle school science classroom, and they were actually looking at drought. They were studying environmental degradation and drought. And the students were actually each assigned a different state 
in the union and to look at what the drought conditions, if any, there were uh, in those states. And obviously, when they started looking at states like Arizona, California, uh, that really generated a lot of conversation around what those states could be doing or should be doing or might be doing to address uh, those problems, which let's face it, uh, they still have. And, uh, and so while the conversation was interesting and while I think students, while I know students were interested in really kind of exploring what the solution to those problems could be, because I truly believe most of our students, just like people in general, are curious. Uh, I think that could have availed itself to a very good PBL project where the essential question could have been, what can states that are experiencing drought possibly do to mitigate the damaging effects? Because that would have required students to be synthesizing information, data, scientific data, text-based evidence. Uh, they would have had to be looking at different solutions different states are trying. And they probably would have had to evaluate which of those strategies for drought mitigation would probably work better than others, and then cite text-based evidence or cite some of the data that would verify why certain of those methods might be more promising than others. So again, that could be, in my opinion, an example of, uh, of a project. You know, the other benefit, if they had done something like that, they could have also, especially now, Steve, with all the technology we have, there's no question uh -huh. in my mind that they could have even reached out to maybe somebody from the government, uh, somebody who's actually working on those problems and zoom them in because if students were taking notes at, around the interview and actually even crafting some of the questions to ask that expert, that as well becomes evidence that they could be using to, again, solve this problem or this, this complex issue them, themselves. Yeah, I think that would be a very powerful strategy. Uh, absolutely. No doubt there. Um, so, and you talked a little bit about uh, essential questions before, but why are driving questions or essential questions so important in the first place? You know? Right. I, they are important for several reasons. One, I, we're, we, are, we are teaching kids. So, you know, it is good that they have those uh, bumper guards up, if you will. So when students do start talking about unrelated matters, the movie they saw last night, the game they went to go see. And I mean, we're all human. We all do this, right? And some of this, <laughs> if, if we're working and producing, some little idle chit-chat, in my opinion, is not a big deal. But essential questions from a management perspective, like I said, help set those guardrails and keep students in the lane of academic learning. So on a very basic level, uh, they help to define the expectation uh, for what we're going to do and why we're going to do it. Also, too, that gets to the second reason essential questions are important. We, I know I, sh I shouldn't say for everyone, but I know that when I learn something, I want to know why is what I am learning important or how is what I am learning ultimately going to make me successful in whatever the goal or the task is. So 
having those essential questions and then being able to identify when as a group or as an individual, I have answered that question helps me to determine whether or not I am not only on task, but whether or not I am learning the learning objective that was set before me. So having those essential questions is in a sense your teaching roadmap, right? Just like when we get in a car right. and we want to drive from, say, New York to, to where or where I am in Montclair, New Jersey, to where you are in Tennessee, you know, I'm going to need a roadmap to do that. And I'll know that I'm successful if I actually get to your house. So right. you could think of essential questions as, in a way, being that intellectual or that academic roadmap to help us to determine whether or not we've reached our goals. So that's another really important reason for essential questions. Again, whether you're doing that in a PBL unit or whether or not you're just posting those essential questions along with the learning objective and the standard uh, that you're doing that day in, in, in your lesson. Uh, I think right, those right. are some of the, the primary reasons. Plus again, as we were talking about before, having a essential question as the as the tree trunk, if you will, there are so many subsidiary questions or new questions that can be derived just from that one question, as well as from the research that you're looking at to answer that question, that it really does engender a more open growth model to learning rather than more simplistic, closed off questions that might get you a right or wrong answer, but don't necessarily add to the collective knowledge that we have. Right, right. Um, let, let me ask you, John, uh, now we talked about, uh, you know, uh, what typically is, is the amount of time that we should spend on a P PBL project. I know we talked about project-based learning experiences, but how much time should be devoted to, to a project? I mean, should it be a day? Should it be three days, a week, two weeks? Sure. Yeah. I think it depends on the complexity of the essential question you're asking. I also think it depends on what the ultimate goal is for project-based learning. If you are using it as an end-of-unit assessment, Obviously, you might want to spend more than 20 minutes on it. You're going to want to probably spend one to three days uh, where students are actually engaged exactly. in, you know, crafting what that is, what that final product is. Because, again, you're going to need to be able to evaluate the overall final product and the individual contributions that each student had made to that product. So in order to do that level of or to have that level of complexity, it's probably going to take students, uh, you know, a day or so to figure out how they're going to go about solving an issue or an essential question, figuring out who is responsible for doing what on that project, bringing it together, synthesizing that information, and then finally polishing, if you will, or refining whatever it is, the, uh, whatever product they actually come up with. So. I think that's going to take a couple of days. Now, with that in mind, it also depends on the age of the students. And if you as a teacher also engaged in a flipped learning model uh, of learning in your classroom. So when I say flipped learning, 
we see more schools now, Steve, where mm-hmm. students are expected to read and to do research outside of class. They may even be expected to collaborate, you know, using digital resources outside of class. And that way, when they come back together in class, that in-class time is not used to read or to develop a background knowledge in whatever it is that they're trying to solve for, but an understanding and an assumption based on the fact that they were told to read or to research on their own, that they already have that background knowledge, that really the time in class is to synthesize to work together to, again, polish that final product. So if the teacher has good command of their classroom and students are going home and doing the reading on their own and using digital technology, that I think could cut down on the amount of class time that you are actually using to uh, using in PBL learning units, if that makes any kind of sense. Yes, it sure does. Um, you know, you you talked about uh, uh, a public display of project-based learning. Uh, let me ask you this about uh, assessing PBL. Um, I think you're you're um, you believe in the use of rubrics. Oh, definitely. You, you could could yeah. Can you talk just uh, you know about that? Sure. So again, whether it's a PBL unit or whether or not you're asking students to write a paper or uh, to uh, you know, do a podcast, whatever it is, whether they're working alone on a project or they're working collaboratively in PBL. I'm glad, Steve, that you mentioned rubrics because I think not only is that then a guide for students as to what their product should look like, but those rubrics also are great ways to then get students self-assessing their own level of work vis-a-vis or against that rubric and peer assessing their work again, based on that rubric. So I'm glad you mentioned it because I think rubrics are essential to evaluating the quality uh, of a product. Absolutely. And it also kind of outlays the, the expectation I think that you have for these kids, you know? So I think that's a real cool thing. Now I Um, will tell, I will tell you though, Steve, not all rubrics Mm -hmm. are created equal though. So, uh, you know, if I can give any hack and maybe this is a hack more for new teachers who aren't used to using rubrics as much as the old hands are, but that is really make sure that the rubric is evaluating how well students know and are able to do the standards that that are embedded in the unit or the learning objective. So I will often see rubrics that will say something like the grammar was correct or there were no smudges on the paper. And while that needs to be part of the rubric, especially when you are publishing your end product, it shouldn't be the be-all, end-all of the rubric. The main focus of that rubric should definitely be the content skills that you want your students to master, whether or not they create a podcast or a poster or uh, a slide deck. The content standards, there needs to be that, you know, you need to see that what regardless of how students have created their end product, that there is an equity 
in how well students have mastered that learning on that standard, both in terms of the content and the skills that you're trying to get students to develop. So again, right, if your skill right. is public presentation, uh, how well are students capturing their audience, engaging their audience, uh, vesting their audience around the problem of practice? So the rubrics that are much more robust and much more aligned to content and skill standards that need to be met along with how a final product looks uh, are, are, are probably going to get at better student self-assessment and peer assessment than again, rubrics that just focus on surface level things such as whether or not there are smudges on the piece of paper or not. Yeah, I, I, I hear that. John, I have to ask you this. What, what are the problems with PBL? Sure. And, and we were already, I think, started talking about some of them. One is definitely the length of time. So you want to really make sure that if you are going to invest one to say three class periods, that you really can demonstrate that students have shown growth from the time before they engaged in PBL to the time after. So just like you would give students a pre-assessment before you taught any unit. I th Exactly. exactly. Yeah. I think this is critical when you're doing PBL because you not only need, you need to show the students uh, why you're investing that amount of time and you need to obviously show management or admin as well as families why you're investing that amount of time. But if it's done right, Steve, I think the pain from doing PBL is significantly greater than what can be uncovered or discovered when you give a student a paper and pencil pretest and a paper and pencil post-test, right? So time is right, right. time and making sure that you're getting your bang for your buck and how much time you're using with PBL, that could sometimes be an issue. But again, the more teachers tie it to quantitative and qualitative assessment, the better, right? So that's one issue that could, exactly. That's there. one issue that can often come up with PBL. Again, the freeloader problem, right? And that is why we want to have roles, student roles, because, you know, human nature is human nature. And whether I'm doing work with like students in K-12 or whether or not I'm hosting a adult workshop, you know, personalities are personalities and some people are doers and some people are a little bit more chill. Exactly. I just want to sit back. So yeah. <laughs> the more you have defined uh, expectations and responsibilities and accountability, uh, the better. Because when you don't have that, that can be a problem. I think too, post COVID, I know I've seen it in the classrooms uh, that I visited or visit. And I know that I have conversations with teachers all the time around the ability of our students to engage with one another in, an, in a live, you know, live setting, not on a Zoom screen, right? They not only have to be fully present in the moment themselves, but again, they need to start collaborating and working with each other in a way that, yes, I think is possible through digital learning, 
but a little bit more challenging and more nuanced to pull off. And yet at the same time, even though we, we are back in schools and students are in classrooms with their teachers, I am noticing that some basic collaboration skills are missing. And so one problem that could come up from PBL or when doing PBL is Jeff definitely just interpersonality dynamics. So again, whether teachers are doing PBL or whether they're doing an inside outside circle, I think it is also important not only for teachers to be developing those questions at a higher rigorous level so students don't get bored and they always have something to add to a question's answer. But I think the other piece, and I do work with teachers around doing this as well, is having discussion starter stems. So when a student agree, like let's say, Steve, I disagree with you, right? Um, what is the appropriate yeah. way for me to start to say that? Where I'm not saying, Steve, you're a jerk. I don't like you. But rather, <laughs> Steve, I don't know if I agree with that point. Can I explain? You know, so right. giving students those tools as well in which to uh, to express themselves. And, you know, and lastly, Absolutely. it is alternative in some ways. So, you know, in this test-driven, standardized assessment world in which we live, uh, it could be sometimes difficult to get school communities to buy into PBL especially when they are evaluated solely by how well students are doing on standardized tests. Yeah, I know. That's, that's, that's a shame. But that is, that is why, Steve, if we're going to use PBL, we do still need to measure its success against student growth and achievement data. Absolutely. I mean, that goes without saying. Uh, John, let me ask you this now. What is the biggest takeaway you'd want teachers to know when implementing PBL in their own classroom? Sure. I think, well, there are several. One of the main ones, and again, I see this a lot in my coaching practice where I'll recommend the teacher try a certain discussion strategy or a certain group strategy. And I'll, not all the time, but occasionally I'll hear back, well, my students can't do it. I tried it, it didn't work, it was a mess, and there was chaos in my classroom. So teachers have to expect that if they are trying something new that students are not used to, there probably will be an element of chaos because that is part of the change process, right? Uh, I'm a big fan of Michael Fullen and his change theory. So there will be chaos, and you will have to go slower at first to go faster later on. So one of the key takeaways is PBL works. There are a lot of examples out there of schools that are using PBL to full effect and students are really, really vested in their learning and really looking at issues in, in complex ways. If it's not working, that's not the issue with PBL as a theory, in my opinion, that's an issue in its implementation. Which exactly, Absolutely, which means teachers have to expect that they're going to probably need to teach the process of PBL as much as the content and the life skills that they want to, students to know and be able to do. Yeah, and I think, yeah, they, there needs to be some explicit instruction on how to 
PBL works, I think, before you actually throw them in to a PBL learning experience project. You know what I mean? Uh, that's my take on it, I would think. Uh, uh, but, <laughs> you know, they have to be taught what the, you know, what the roles are going to be, how it's going to work. Exactly. You know, and then, too, students need to be brought into the process of assessing, again, not just how well they know the content and life skills that they're studying, but assessing how well they did in the process. So the reason I mention that is I am a big fan of uh, an organization that was formerly known as the Buck Institute for, for of Education. They are now known as PBL Works. They are located in California. And I'm a big fan of their work when it comes to integrating PBL uh, units of study across schools and across districts. They work internationally with schools. But in addition to them providing individual coaching, Steve, they have a tremendous number of resources, many of which are available free online on their website. And some of those resources involve the rubrics that you mentioned. They involve students taking a, a step back and self-assessing and group assessing the process as well as the standards, the content standards. So I highly recommend if any teacher out there listening to your podcast is really excited about doing PBL, which they should be, that they really check out PBL Works online and the resources that are available to them there. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Uh, John, tell me, where can folks go sure, to connect Steve, with Sure, Steve. I am all over LinkedIn. I post on LinkedIn weekly, daily on simple hacks that teachers can use to improve their teaching practice. I also do, I, I love it. That's great. It's also a yeah. great way for me to engage my network and to learn what other people are doing out there, right? So they can definitely, they can definitely find me there. I do have a series of online teaching courses, uh, simple ha teaching hacks for teachers, which would be very appropriate for new teachers mm -hmm. on Teachable. And you can find those courses under my uh, Teachable webpage, which is called Have a Life Teaching. And I am also on TikTok as well. All right. That is great. John, I want to thank you so much for sharing your expertise with oh, us Oh, thanks, today. Steve. It's always fun talking with other educators such as yourself. And uh, I'm glad that you recommended that we talk about this topic because I think it's I think it's an exciting uh, one. Yeah, I do, too. And I, I could talk about it for, for hours. Uh, you know, I really look forward to having you back on the show. Likewise. And, and I want you to have a great day. And we're going to talk Steve. soon. Well, you're welcome. Well, we have come to the end of today's episode, and thanks for listening to the Teacher Rockstar Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Hiles, and we hope you've got some golden nuggets on project-based learning that you can implement right in your own classroom. When you get a moment, visit my new and improved blog and subscribe to my newsletter for the latest educational research, best practices, and unadvertised free bonuses. Go to blog.teacherclassroomresources.com. And don't forget to subscribe to us at Teacher Rockstar Podcast. And if you'd like to support us, please feel free to share our podcast with others, post about it on social media, leave a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated, as always. Thanks again, and we'll see you same time, same place next week. And remember, my friend, you got this.